Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. This is episode one, The Big Picture, an overview of the world below the war in the heavens. In this episode, we'll be exploring the war in the heavens and what that means for the people who dwell in the world below. And I'll also sketch out for you the geography of this magical land before introducing the current political situation. An overview of the world below the war in the heavens wouldn't be complete, though, without some idea of the level of magically enabled technology. And to ignore the influence and history of the temple would be neglectful in the extreme. So I'll be doing my best to explain that controversial and delicate state of affairs. Sit back, relax, and get ready to take notes, if that's your won't, as we plunge into the world below the war in the heavens. For a start, what makes this world so interesting, so different from our own, and so worth exploring in detail, as well as the simple exotica that another world has with the customs and culture that it necessarily enjoys, the world beneath the war in the heavens has the direct evidence of divine beings, because they've been falling out of the sky and landing dead on the world for roughly 4,000 years of recorded history, and most likely for ages before that. When the ruined body of a celestial warrior plummets out of the sky and impacts on the local landscape right in front of you, it can't do anything other than shape your worldview, right? The Eternal War in the Heavens and the Resulting Heaven Falls Since the dawn of time, a war has been fought in the heavens between gods and countless malevolent demons. This is invisible to the world below as the heavens are intangible, the realm of stuff that is otherworldly in the best sense of the word. This war, apart from being a very real and very apparent sign paralleling the moral struggle within us all, it impinges on humanity in a concrete and lucrative way. As artefacts, unforeseen consequence of this internal battle, plunge to the earth at irregular intervals. These are the heaven falls. If you happen to be standing underneath one of these artefacts, mostly items of war, swords, shields, various bits of battleground kit, you get impinged on quite finally. Because gods and demons, being what they are, are of immense size. If one of the gods happened to lose a fingernail in a skirmish with a demon and it plunged to the world, it would easily crush a large house or a small castle, depending on whether the god bit her fingernails or not. That which falls from the heavens isn't simply equipment, though. On rare occasions, it's a casualty of the war in the heavens, a dead god, in other words. Slightly more often, and this attests to the brutality of the battle in the heaven, its body parts. Something that emphasises the otherworldliness of these heaven falls is that even though they're plunging from an unimaginable distance above, 
they don't hit the land as hard as you'd expect. Even though these seven falls can be immense, they're, they're, they're no dinosaur killers. Various theories have been advanced for the relatively gentle impact, ranging from Pallister's uh, notion of heavenly drift to Jur Stilson's positing something she called vertical neglect. But the consensus today is that the heavenly substance in this initial removal from the heavens themselves has an antipathy for the ordinary world, so much so that it nearly overcomes gravity. Not quite, though, and large impacts still make a considerable crater, albeit one that's created in an eerie slow-motion fashion. It is the nature of the heavens that almost all falls from the blue uh, are covered with scales, a thin skin, an integument, a layer. These scales, being of heavenly substance, are imbued with puissance, magical power, much sought after. With skill and talent, these scales can be separated from the underlying heavenly body or artefact and used to create devices of magical power, uh, weapons of supreme sharpness and strength, or, more subtly, to power spellcasting. When a heavenly object actually does plummet to the earth, a, a heavenfall, it prompts the equivalent of a gold rush, if if it's noticed, if it's observed. And this is where people stampede to stake a claim to this fabulously valuable object. Of course, staking a claim is no good unless you can defend this claim, and that's the way wars start. It's also the way kingdoms and realms start. The map of the world below the war in the heavens today shows a number of kingdoms, realms, city-states, and almost all of them began with somebody claiming a heavenfall and defending that claim. I'll get to enumerating and exploring some of these realms soon. As an aside, though, rather than seeing an actual heavenfall and tracking down its place of impact, another way to find these riches is to go prospecting, exploring the wilderness and trying to uncover a heavenfall from ages past. This requires tricky and possibly expensive magic, but the payoff is immense. The Geography of the World Below Let me give you some idea of the continent, the world below, and its size. Uh, The north is hot, it's tropical, many rainforests but also extensive semi-arid savannas. The south is colder, not arctic cold, simply less warm than the north. Snow is rare, for instance, except on the higher peaks. Speaking of mountains, a substantial mountain range runs along the eastern side of the continent. Very tall, very forbidding. Rivers run down either side of the mountain range, including the largest river system, which waters and fertilises a fair proportion of the eastern, southeastern part of the world below. Most of the realm, states and kingdoms are ranged along the coast, or at least within a few hundred miles of it. This is a more fertile part of the continent. Uh, Some realms are more inland, but frankly, life is tougher away from the coast. The interior is actually still largely uncharted. Unexplored? Mm, Perhaps. There's much desert, but rumours abound of mountains, fertile valleys and communities 
made up of those who've left the coastal regions for various reasons. Around the coast, uh, there were lots of islands scattered around, including a very large one south of Anaquist, and that uh, island is called Jalox, and an even larger one to the immediate north, uh, Besely, which is a true land of contrast. Tropical, but with glaciers on the towering mountain ridge that runs up and down the spine of Besely. Also, it has volcanoes. The world ocean surrounds the continent uh, of the world below. It's big, very big. It wraps right around the world uninterrupted. And to give you a quick idea of the size of the world below, the single continent of this place, it was roughly from north to south what we call 3,000 kilometres, a couple of thousand miles. And from east to west, uh, 4,000 kilometres or 2,500 miles. More or less, uh, sometimes these measurings, these distances, can get a little rubbery. The current kingdoms, realms and states of the world below. We have a number of them at the moment, and I do say at the moment, these things change and can change quickly, and I'll list them for you. There is the preeminent realm of Anaquist, there's also Rortav, Honf, Inner Honf, Kildare, Framen, Tinland, Resmia, Toltras, Phoenicia, Benthia, and then the multitude of petty states in Jalox, too numerous and too fleeting to mention here, because by the time I list them, half will be gone, another dozen will have arisen. Fun place to visit, Jalox, but I wouldn't want to try to establish a long-lasting state there. Over the four millennia of recorded history, just about every system of government has been tried somewhere in the world below. Plenty of monarchies, almost naturally, lots of autocracies, tyrannies and despotic regimes, but also oligarchies, democracies of various sorts, but some of the more offbeat ways of organising of people have popped their head up now and again in the 4,000 years of recorded history in the world below. There have been plutocracies, there have been theocracies, there have been gerontocracies where old people rule. There's been a cryptarchy or two uh, ruled by secret people. I always imagine that as masked rulers hiding behind the curtains. There have been matriarchies, patriarchies, and naturally more than a few anarchist states that, yeah, didn't last long. Right now, these realms and states are experiencing a somewhat uneasy time of peace, mostly due to the thriving trade between the realms, facilitated by magical distance communication. A recent development in relative terms. Wars of expansion and conquest have occurred in the lifetimes of most of the people dwelling in the world below, though, uh, with Trask in the west of the continent being notoriously bellicose thanks to its ruler, King Numa, who never saw a realm he didn't want to invade and annex. That's now, but the world below has a lot of then It's had many lost, forgotten and or vanished realms, each with a story of its own. Some of the stories are well known and documented, while others are still to be uncovered. Let me share with you a brief, condensed, concise history of one of these, the story of the forgotten realm of Ulm. 
Ulm was a small kingdom in the southwest of the world below, a part of what is now the kingdom of Trask. When Trask was first settled in the 1200s, pastoralists seeking grasslands for their stock moved to the far southwest and came across the remains of a hitherto unknown civilization, the cities uh, remaining behind after the people had vanished. Some excavation followed, enough to determine that the inhabitants called the realm Ulm and that it was sustained by the growing and harvesting of a tall plant, the use of which is still uncertain. Was it a spice? Was it a, a root crop? Was it a dye? We don't know, because Bengun has disappeared. We have murals and stone carvings that tell us what Bengun looked like, something like what we call giant fennel. But not a trace of a living Bengen plant has been found. It appears as if the economy, or perhaps the health of the citizens of Ulm, depended on Bengen, and when it died out, so did their realm. What we're left with is a series of ruins, stone buildings showing a distinctive patterning, because nearly every stone facing, uh, window, frame, door lintel, is carved in a vegetative theme with vines, leaves, fruit and flowers, often in highly complex, repeating designs. In the three or 4,000 years of recorded history of the world below, many, many alms have risen and fallen, waiting for discovery and for their story to be told. Level of technology. The world below has a level of technology well, we'd call it lowish technology, but with breakouts in various areas, mostly facilitated by magic, but only in areas sanctioned by the temple. A prime example is the area of communication. About a hundred years ago, a few magical adepts in various places across the continent, in a fascinating example of when the time is right, the technology will arise, they began making breakthroughs in various magically enabled methods of communicating over a distance. The temple's initial impulse, as always, was to quash this, and it's said that some of the best minds of a generation disappeared thanks to the temple's ruthlessness. Gradually, though, it became harder and harder for the temple to keep a lid on the bright minds who were experimenting with this development. Thus, the temple fell back on its usual fallback, it made the technology its own, especially after a few canny ecclesiasts realised how useful good distance communication could be in strengthening the temple as the only continent-spanning organisation and authority. Having said this, it's notable how the power of the temple has been waning since the introduction of this communication technology. Many younger adepts have been chafing under the restrictions that the temple imposes on research and Probably as a result, the underground, unauthorised magical experimentation and fabrication has been booming. You could say that the world below is on the verge of an industrial magical revolution. Religion in the world below the war in the heavens. The temple effectively controls magic. In the earliest days, it simply assumed that it was the authority in all things heavenly and took on the role of certifying the origin and thus authenticity of scales and other heavenly objects. And since it charges a levy for each such declaration, 
The temple is so rich that it makes filthy rich look just slightly grimy. Every temple, no matter how remote or how tiny, has a treasury, a vault containing serious riches. Serious, serious riches. The sort that take a couple of thousand years of undisputed eminence to accumulate. The temple gradually took on more responsibility and effectively became the overseer and guardian of all magic and its applications, because it was appointed by the gods, after all, uh, in the earliest days of humanity, appointed to be uh, their representative in the world below. The temple trains, regulates and licenses magical theorists and fabricators, those who create magical devices and applications. Let it be said that the temple is conservative. It has actually stifled magical innovation in an effort to control it, giving its imprimatur to only such magic that enhances its own position. The temple also spends a lot of time managing the halls, those institutes, the equivalent of universities, that study the gods and scales. And they also spend a lot of time in there uh, arguing minutiae, splitting hairs, etc. Academic careers and prestige are made of this. The state in Aniquist runs schools and hospitals and charities, which is different from some of the other realms where the temple has control of all of this sort of thing. A prime temple in each realm has relics, the clothing, armour and other objects that have fallen from the heavens as a result of the war above. These naturally are objects, artefacts of veneration and worship. A question for contemplation. Is the temple corrupt? After 2,000 years of unquestioned power, where wealth and authority have amassed, where ecclesiastes grapple with questions of the soul immortal while living in luxury, in an organisation that is the only power that spans the continent, a hallowed institution that is made up of human beings in all their fallibility. Well, how could it be otherwise than corrupt? A better question would be, how corrupt is it? Magic in the world below the war in the heavens. The scales that cover the bodies of the dead god, being heavenly, have intrinsic magical power in the world below. And applications of this magical power have been developing over the millennia as adepts, ecclesiasts and savants of all kind have studied the scales and their potential. For much of the history of the world below, the primary use of scales was to make weapons of outstanding capability and armour of surpassing endurance. Fashioning scales into weapons and armour, however, is challenging and requires great skill. As well as their use for arms and armour, scales have been used and prized for their aesthetic qualities, not just what they look like, although they are almost always arrestingly beautiful in their own right. But when fashioned into jewellery and ornaments by exceptional artists, they can cast light effects that uh, dazzle and charm and can even move an onlooker to tears. Again, such fashioning is extraordinarily difficult and many scales have been ruined and fortunes lost in the process of attempting to shape them to create new effects. Over the millennia, a very, very few musical instruments have been successfully made of scales, mostly things of the flute kind. 
These are legendary for their tone and their nuance, no matter how skilled or unskilled the flautist. And even rarer than these few musical instruments have been individual who may as well have been called sorcerers or wizards. A handful of these talented people over the centuries have had an innate skill and they've been able to hold a scale and project their will through it to achieve magical effects. Today, though, possibilities are opening for scales to be used in new and exciting ways, with useful effects obtained via devices that are essentially powered by complex arrangements of scales. The temple is doing its best to control this potential revolution, of course, but developments of this kind have a habit of escaping authorities who'd wish to suppress them. Adepts are the people who grapple with magic in the most practical way. Two types of adepts often work in pairs, in partnership. These are the theoreticians who calculate and draw plans and diagrams using established magical principles, uh, balancing the various inherent properties of the scales to achieve the required effect. Fabricators fashion the scales, layering them in the most effective sequence and arranging them at the heart of most magical devices. Those two work together to achieve wonders. The other two magical adepts are percipients and graders. Percipients can sense magic and are much in demand for prospecting expeditions in the wilderness. Graders work alongside ecclesiasts and are responsible for declaring the colour, the lustre, the size, the puissance and the quality of the scales as they're removed. And this is a vital certification, not just for the adepts who want to use the scales, but for the entire economy that is based on the trade in scales that goes right across the continent. Scales. Let's, Let's talk about these scales that have fallen from the heavens and been extracted from the bodies of the dead gods. Scales come in a dizzying range of sizes, colours and other attributes, but they share a few things in common. One, they're exceedingly hard and durable. Two, they're extraordinarily beautiful. Now, graders and ecclesiasts have essentially codified the properties of scales into five categories. Colour, lustre, size, puissance and quality. Taking them one by one, colour is traditionally the most difficult category to establish. Scales often contain more than one colour, and determining the dominant colour is an exacting task, especially since scales can change colour, and some exhibit continuous rippling shades and tinctures. A cerulean scale can look pervench, and even ultramarine if observed at an angle. Careers have been made and broken on the issue of colour alone. Luster. Luster is pinpointed as, in descending order, uh, scintillating, radiant, brilliant, bright, lustrous, plain, indifferent, muted, dim, or dull. Size. Size is reasonably easy to determine. There's not much argument about size, really. Uh, size ranges from immense, which is larger than a large door, down through gargantuan, superior, extra-large, large, middling, small, minute, to exiguous, the, which the size of a fingernail, 
puissance. Now, puissance is extremely important because this is essentially the, the, the magical power that's inherent in each scale. And a, 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 a tiny scale can have enormous puissance and a very large scale might, might only have a little. So this is something that has to be determined independently by the grader. And the most puissant scales are in the prodigious category. Prodigious. Then we have supreme, mighty, potent, extra strong, strong, useful, adequate, and finally we get down to feeble. The last category is quality, and it's the most controversial one. Critics claim that it's entirely subjective, even though graders use gauges and other measuring tools to arrive at a value. The highest quality that has been denoted is choice, choice quality. Then we go down to middling, passable, compact, modest, inferior, finally meagre. It needs to be said, though, that even the least scale is an object of extraordinary beauty, and those with sensitive souls who encounter one are moved with a pang something like uncertainty, a nameless emotion that unfailingly reminds them that these things come from a higher place. Speaking of graders, a grader only reaches the status of grand expert after decades of accurate assessment, and only after the acclamation of her peers as well. But even a grand expert's assessment can be challenged. Thus, the procedure of certification can be a long and costly one, much to the delight of the temple, as it adds a percentage uh, to each sale for the endorsement of the assessment. The longer the assessment, uh, the higher the price, the more money the temple gets. Next episode, episode two, we'll focus on Anarchist, the richest, most powerful, longest established stable realm in the world below the war in the heavens. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. Farewell.